Oh, good morning. I'm Kevin Boyle, old crazy army officer, professor, and runner. Welcome to another episode of Old Crazy Runners. I have my cousin Nicholas, the oldest of the crazy runners, and this is Fundy, the tiredest and craziest of the crazy runners. Now officially part of the crazy, old crazy runners indeed. Uh, joining us today, we're going to talk with Kevin Boyle, author of Going the Distance Tales and Tips from Six Decades of Marathons. And after running a marathon, doing it six times each and every decade seems a little crazy. Well, I don't know if he's run six. He might have run more than that, but he's ran a marathon in each decade for six decades at least. And uh, we got a long way to go if we're going to catch that one. Well, we can't backtrack. We cannot back. We're <laughs> only moving forward. I got my 40s and 50s covered. I got to go back in time. That's all I got. You got 50, 60, 70, 80, 90. You, you got to make it to 100 to get your six. At least maybe 120. I don't know. My math is off. It's a great conversation. You're going to love it. Be sure to rate and review the podcast, and more importantly, share it with a friend because we know that you have some old crazy friends. And make sure that you and your friends take a moment to go by Strava and join the Old Crazy Runners podcast, Strava Run Club. You can try your best to unseat Andy Glaze at the top of the leaderboard one week, just one week. I ran a full marathon and still did not even crack the top 25 of the total miles run. So let's talk about that. You actually went out and finished a marathon. Yeah, so uh, it was good. Those last six miles are definitely tough. Uh, not recommended. Uh, finished 54 seconds above my goal. 54 seconds. 54 God seconds. Yeah. God damn it. I know that I know. feeling, man. I wanted to break four, I wanted to break 420. I did 42017. <laughs> oh man. So I was going back and looking through and uh pretty much was I think at mile 20 I was a 905 average pace, so doing good. Um I could have been a little bit slower at the beginning, but you know, going back looking, I looked at the the women's uh winner for the marathon. And yeah. the top three or four went through some of the men and everybody slows down a little bit of those last five miles. So I think the reason that I wasn't able to hit my goal is more of, I didn't do enough strength training and uh, that's, uh, yeah. enough speed work. I don't think it was strategy wise. I think I've, you know, if I wanted to finish that sub four, that's kind of what I need, where I needed to be. Um, I just didn't do enough weight training. Okay. So hold on a second here. Um, I am on your page. Yeah. Uh, you actually, you started out great. You were right on your 902 pace. Yeah. And it was, you're right. It was just those last. Yeah. Even at mile 22, I was at 907 average pace. So yeah. I, yeah, I just so the, didn't have the muscle strength and the stamina to get that last four miles in. The, uh, results have you at a 905 through your half. And a 920 in your second half. So definitely feeling the effects in that uh, that back end. Yeah, 
Yeah, and that uh, most of that 920 was the uh, 21 mile and above. Sure. Yeah, and I I definitely am feeling the benefits of incorporating more weight training. I felt very strong afterwards. I was not, I mean, I know I only did a half marathon, just, you know, significantly different in impact on your body. Uh, but as far as me having ran half marathons and what I felt afterwards, A, I had insoles this time. <laughs> a bonus. <laughs> Huge bonus. Major impact on the uh, the effects of the race. Uh, but also just didn't feel that uh, muscle exhaustion. Yeah. You know, I, I still felt strong. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's key. I'm going to. Yeah, I'm going to be doing a lot more weight training. Yeah. Yeah. I would also like to bring up this fact that uh, basically ran a four-hour marathon. Right. And in the uh, 50 to 54 age group, I was in the bottom fucking third. Yes. The bottom third, four-hour marathon in the 50 to 54 age group. Who the fuck are these people? So I, I was looking at that as well. So I ran a 148 half. Yeah. Respectable. Respectable. I was 18 out of 98 in the half marathon. Yeah. So I'm in the top 20%. Yeah. For our age bracket in the half marathon. You were in top 60 in the marathon. I mean, the difference between who's yeah. running the half marathon and the marathon, yeah. man, I, I'm sorry. You just, you were up against well, a, who, a crowd who of are people these that 50 were out plus there. year olds that are, uh, running. I mean, it's holy shit. It's insane. Yeah. Those are big numbers. I like to see that many people out there running. Yeah. So, uh, man to, so basically for a full marathon for us to finish in the top 25%, a lot of people are going to have to die. Yeah, I don't know what age we're going to have to age up to, to to get to that point. Well, based on based on longevity in the U.S., I think we're going to have to be running in our 90s. Well, I think there's a different way to look at it, and that is uh, which race we run. So I think these results dictate one major point. This was a Boston qualifying race. Yes. So you had your serious people running the marathon. Yep. And you had everybody else that didn't give a shit ran the half. Yeah. So I did pretty good amongst those that didn't give a shit running the half. So we yep. need to just run a race where the marathon itself is not a Boston qualifier yep. and doesn't attract this group of elite people. So we got to run the bumfuck nowhere marathon. We do. I'm thinking, um, like, La Grand, Oregon, something like that. The Reedsport Marathon, <laughs> someplace flat. Uh, that was another. I do have a bone to pick with the Eugene Marathon, is that they touted themselves as a flat marathon, and there was 560 feet of elevation. Dude, that's not flat. I mean, it's not Portland, but it's not flat. Relative. Right. This isn't. Yeah. I, I, 500 feet over 26 miles is, is that's negligible. You had a couple hills. They were in the beginning. Okay. I do have a bone to pick with that in the beginning was fine, but within those last five miles, 
uh, the trail, there were some hills in there that were motherfuckers right there at like mile 23 or 24. And which is fine, which is fine, but you cannot bill yourself as a flat and fast full marathon with some hills right at the end. You just can't. Well, first of all, let's call them bumps. They didn't I mean, feel let's, like let's be bumps. realistic. <laughs> they were like they were like a speed bump. Whatever. Uh, but I get you, man. At that point, your body's like, listen, I'm doing everything I can to haul myself to the the end. I don't need any more distractions. Yeah, I don't. What What is this thing? What are you doing? What are you? Doing? Oh man, but I do, man. Um, but I I was happy that you know. I tried, I tried to give it a burst at the end. I saw my video at the end. There was no burst. The one that I took of you? I, there were multiple videos. There, you took it. Bill took it. My wife, yeah. Ikuyo, my wife took it. All of the videos gave the same evidence. There was no burst. There was just, there was a vague shuffle. Oh, man. Uh, they must have still been out on the course. I, haven't, I didn't get anything. I was the first one to come in only yeah. running a half and being ahead of Scotty G and uh, I, I put in a solid sprint down that, that stretch. Oh yeah. It was good. Yeah. I wouldn't uh, do that after 26 miles. No. So, but I did uh, on those last three miles, that was another thing that was, that was difficult is those last basically up until almost mile 26, um, you were alone on a trail in the forest. Like it was lonely. Oh, okay. There were, that was tough. That was mentally very challenging that there was like, there was a couple water stops, but there was nobody cheering. You were alone. And I passed a couple people that were, man, they were hurting. They were like holding themselves and just doing this kind of like walking dead shuffle. I was like, whew, they're not looking good. Now you have more appreciation for your role as mile 24 guy. There, these people were like, they were walking, like they were like, uh, they needed a medical attention. Right. Type stuff. They didn't yeah. need some guy going, woohoo, you got two more miles. Let's yeah. go. <laughs> they needed something. Except you, you got to sit down. You, you, look, yeah. you look like they you're a stretcher. Oh uh, man. Well, let's not forget that Chris ran the uh, marathon as well. He also did not meet his goal, unfortunately. And uh, talking with him afterwards, he's also kind of said the same thing. I, I agree. If you want to get, you know, there's, I, I think in most aspects of what we do, it's not this linear growth. It's no. jumps and levels and jumps and levels. And I think this, this next jump, just getting past this four hour mark, the really, the key part of really making that happen is, is the weight training and making your body strong. And, and the results that, that come with that. Um, and uh, fart licks and intervals. Like, you're just going to have to do those. It's just going to You've got to do at least one more day of some sort of speed work. Yep. You know, incorporate that additional level. And we, we talked about that, that, that jump between, what was the uh, Higdon that you, you ran? Was that the advanced beginner? Uh, yeah, it was the novice two. Base, advanced beginner, novice, novice two. two. Yep. And the next one up from that is the first level of intermediate. Yeah which is all sorts of speed work and stuff. And yeah. Yeah. And I think if you ran that inner first level intermediate to the plan, you would do probably significantly better than four hours, like in the three fifty range. One would hope. So you could kind of do somewhere in between the two. 
get you over that hump. I'm setting up your plan for the Portland Marathon that you think you're backing out on. Uh, well, all I am thinking is that you're about to start your plan, so you might as well make the plan the plan. Ooh, man. <laughs> Scotty G called me about that today. He he continues to need support in making this decision. Is he waffling? He's not waffling. Um, he's waffling. Yeah. yeah. So, basically... He's like, this is a stupid plan. And you're like, yeah, but it's going to be good. You should do it anyway. I'm like, God damn right. It's a stupid plan, but you're the last one that's even thinking about running it. Exactly. So you got to stay with it, man. You're the only guy I got. <laughs> you're the only one I got. Uh, and, you know, there is some truth to that. I, I look forward to having somebody to be part of the training plan. It's important. And uh, to be clear, I would do that, but I have done two marathon plans in a row and I need to break. So even though I didn't do the Portland marathon, I did all of the training except for the last 20 miler run. I did 17 weeks of marathon training. Right. Sorry, man. Here's your hernia. Yeah. Sorry. Here's your hernia. Oh, uh, let's start the marathon training again. So uh, I'm going to take a little break. Well, it's, why is that you listen to yourself and uh, take that break? And uh, our guest today is somebody who certainly has done that because there's no way that you have the longevity that he's had if you don't pay attention to what it takes to be a marathon runner. Yeah, so Kevin Boyle wrote the book Going the Distance, Tales and Tips from Six Decades of Marathons. He ran his first marathon in his teens and his dad gave him a can of Coke at mile marker 20 in 1979 for hydration, which is not recommended today. And uh, things have changed a lot since 1979. They certainly have. And yet, in a lot of ways, they've stayed the same. The one thing that I really take away from his conversation is, is running on feel and just becoming uh, really connected with who you are as a runner. This is a fantastic conversation. You're going to love what he's got to say. Let's get to it. Kevin Boyle, thank you for joining the podcast. It's great to have you. Oh, thank you for having me this morning. So just to start off with, um, I know you have a new book out. I have to confess I'm only on chapter three, so I'm not okay. quite as far as I wanted to be <laughs> for the interview, but uh, with work ramping back up, uh, it's been that way. Tell us about your book. One of the things that I love about the book is how you've laid out where you're basically talking about a marathon of each decade of your life. Exactly. So I start, I'm kind of lucky because I started with the marathon when I was young uh, in back in the 70s when I was 15 I did my first marathon um, and I and I never really thought about writing a book I never really thought about that I had done one in every decade I just did them you know during my life and then right before COVID in March of 2020 I was taking a walk with my son and he was he was nine at the time and that's when you start to think about the world bigger than your neighborhood. So we've gone for a, a long walk and he goes, Hey, how far are we going to walk? I said, this will probably be about two miles. He's like, what's the furthest you have ever done? And I said, I did this thing called a marathon. And we started talking and he's really into numbers. So he said, wait a second, you've done one in five decades. He goes, it's 2020. You have to do one in six decades. And I was like, okay. Um, and then um, COVID came. So there's no races. And then he reminded me last spring, hey, you said this would be the sixth decade. So I had to get in shape for it. And then 
as I was getting in shape for it the, you know, last summer, I was thinking, when you get older, you have a duty to pass on what you know to other people. So, And I learned that from Matt Sench, which is my college coach. So I thought, you know, I've done a lot of marathons. I've done one in six decades. <laughs> I know a lot about the marathon. Um, so I decided to write a book about it. it, kind of a few things combined. One is how the marathon has changed since the 1970s. Because in the 1970s, my medal was the size of a quarter. Um, there was no such thing as Gatorade. Um, there was, it was my dad handing me Coca-Cola during the race. There was $4 entry fee. Uh, so it was a lot different. Um, so my book, I want to kind of focus on one marathon per decade to talk about how the marathon has changed over time and also give tips along the way. Now, my book is sort of not like do this 16-week training schedule um, because I don't know the reader. I don't know their work schedule. I don't know why they run. So every program has to be more individualized, but I give overall tips, that, you know, based on what I mostly fouled up on over the past six decades, you know, my mistakes. So I give tips along the way as I give stories for each marathon. So Kevin, uh, tell Nicholas what your first race bib was uh, made of. Oh, the, my first was an index card. Um, it was a five mile <laughs> road race. Um, in, uh, I had just finished, um, junior high track and it was a five mile road race. My, my high school homeroom teacher, social studies teacher and track coach was the 1968 Olympic track coach, Mike Burns. And Mr. Burns started the high school nationals. He also had the first running store on Long Island. And he also put on the first road race in Long Island. And he basically used his car's odometer and figured out a course. And then we got it when we got to the start area, we got an index card um, with our number on it. And then when we finished, we got handed a popsicle stick with our place on it. Index cards and popsicle sticks. We've we've yeah. come a so long it was, way. It was a high level race. Yes. Yeah. yes. <laughs> so I, I want to uh, revisit that first medal again. How how big was that? Did you say the size of a quarter? Oh, he's got it. Yes. If, um, I have it right here, actually. Uh, if you can see it, this yes. is. My first marathon medal. Yeah, so it's basically a keychain. It's a keychain that says I finished the 1979 Long Island Marathon, and it's the size of a quarter, um, which is kind of funny because I'm doing the Shamrock Marathon next week, and I'm doing the 8K the day before, then I'm doing the next race, so I'm getting this thing called a dolphin medal or something. <laughs> <laughs> the medals Dol are so big, you know, compared to what they were in the 70s. But this one means a lot since I still have it, obviously. Well, I think that's a pretty cool medal. Uh, Fundy and I talk about that quite a bit for whatever stupid reason. It's one of the main motivations we get out there is, is for the medals that we win. And we're always ones to highlight that bigger is better, but not always. And that one was cool. I like it. It's a, it was a simple keychain. It wasn't like just cheap and tacky. I mean, it was not, that's a nice little medal. It just isn't the size yes. of a belt buckle. Well, it might be the size of a belt buckle if you're a hipster. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so tell us about your first marathon, how old you were, and uh, also um, your shoes going into it. Uh, All right. So, the, the waffle shoes. Yeah. So my first marathon was 1979. I, and what had happened was I was horrible. I was the worst runner in the world. So in 10th grade cross country, um, I was two minutes behind second to last place. Like I was finishing and people are getting in their cars and I was just terrible. Um, but 
the marathon kind of intrigued me ever since I saw Frank Shorter in 1972. Um, my dad was not just old school. He was like oldest school, if there's such a thing. So 1972, I was watching the Olympics and Frank Shorter was finishing. And I said, how is he still running? And my, bad, my dad just said, run a marathon, find out for yourself. So it was kind of in the back of my mind. And then my high school was right next to the Wantor Parkway, which was a causeway that goes down to the beach on Long Island. Um, and we used to do our runs there all the time. So one day when it, I was in ninth grade, I saw that there was a marathon there. And I said, wow, maybe I should think about doing this since I'm so bad at cross country and track. So I kind of decided I would do it the next year um, after swim team ended. I was on swim team in the winter. So when swim team ended, I had eight weeks to go to get ready for the marathon. So back then, there was only really two sneakers. There was, well, there was racing shoes, which were spikes, but they were very, very thin. Um, they, they came out from, they were Tiger and they were Puma. And you get them from the school and then return them at the end of the season. Adidas had a sneaker out and then Nike had a new shoe called the Waffle Trainer that came out. So I got a pair of the Waffle Trainers and they looked just like a waffle um, on the bottom. So I got the Waffle Trainers um, from Mr. Burns' store and then I had eight weeks to practice, which doesn't seem like a lot, but um, I had been on swim team you know, for years, I was on track and cross country. So I had a base already. So I had eight weeks to go. And my dad, who was like a lifelong smoker, like I think he kept Paul Mall in business. Um, <laughs> and I think he kept Schmidt Spear in business as well. But anyway, um, he had some folks in his office who ran because this was the first running boom in the 70s. And they had this thing called the Corporate Challenge where the corporations in New York City competed in Central Park. So they had a pretty good team. Um, at his office, Con Ed, where he was that's the electric company in New York. So he cobbled together a schedule with some of the individuals he worked with, and he brought it home on a little index card for me. And it had Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, um, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and each every day under that eight weeks, you know, for the mileage. So I looked at the first week, and there was like three runs longer than I had ever run in my life to begin with. Um, and but I figured, okay, I'll just gut it out. So the first week, by the end of the first week, I was did a 12-mile run. And then each week, I just added to it. And then by the sixth week, I was up to 20 miles for my long run. And I didn't do any intervals. I just ran every day um, on my own after school. And I never really thought about it as something maybe not unusual because my family was really into unusual challenges, I guess. Like when I asked my dad why there was no bridge from Connecticut to Long Island, he said, swim across the Long Island Sound and find out for yourself, which was 13 miles, which my brother and I did one long, long day um, when I was going into 10th grade. So we always did long stuff like that. So the marathon, I just thought was like a regular race. Like you run up, you sign up for it, you train, you do it. Um, so I just ran every day. I was very, very lucky because I lived right near this road called the Wantar Parkway on the South Shore of Long Island that goes down to the beach and back that had a bike path. So I could just run on the bike path and the race actually went on that exact road. So it was very familiar to me. Um, but a lot of things were different back then. Like the sign up process was easy. It was $4. Um, you just got a flyer at a local running store. You filled it out, mailed it in and you got in the race. Um, and then as far as the race logistics, 
Um, there was no such thing as erg or gels or Gatorade or none of that stuff. It was just defizzled Coca-Cola. Um, there was no such thing as sports bottles. So I had to go to Carvel, the ice cream store, the day before the race to ask them for cups with straws. So um, it was different from today. I'm, I'm not saying, I don't want to be like the movie Dirty Dancing at the end where they were complaining. Everything was better back then. It was different. It's, the marathon is really, really good now. It was really good then. It's just different. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think one of the things to highlight about the value of it being different is it's allowed for a larger pool of people to, to uh, comfortably participate. I use comfortably very cautiously when it comes to a marathon. Uh, but, you know, these are the things that had to change in order to continue to uh, adapt to the growing community of people that wanted to run the marathon to, to make it more of an event. And so, I mean, I think it's been good growth and uh, it doesn't necessarily take away from what it takes to, to run a marathon to say that you're out there with all these resources. Well, that's an awesome point because I, I talk about that in my book because I kind of saw a shift around 2000. Um, when the marathon, kind of, let's call it the second running boom. So um, it, 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 there would be thousands, thousands of people running. Um, and then I, I saw some backlash, you know, on some different websites. Oh, there's too many people. Oh, you know, there's people not running fast. I'm like, what are you talking about? First off, they ain't going to close an entire city for 150 people to run a marathon. Right. Yeah, a marathon's a business. Because um, if you think about a big city marathon, if you're bringing in 20,000 people, you're bringing in 20,000 hotel rooms, you're bringing in 20,000 dinners, you're bringing in all that stuff to a city. And if you think they're going to close down New York City for 150 people to try to chase their PR, you're out of your mind. So first off, logistically, you have to let more people. Secondly, it adds to the tapestry of the race. You get so many different reasons that people are running. There's charity runners doing awesome things for different charities. Um, there's people who challenge, you know, they want to challenge themselves. Hey, I'm a little bit out of shape and I want to challenge myself. So you add so much to the race by having more people. Um, I think it's an absolutely fantastic thing. And the, the people who say, oh, they're not running as fast. Well, they ain't slowing you down. <laughs> you're right. They're not, you know, they're, you're still doing your race. Try to set your best time. I welcome you to do that, but don't, you know, say anything about the other 30,000 people who have an equal right to be on that road. And if you're running so fast that you're worried about your time, you probably better not be behind any of those people anyway. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yes. So I had one comment on the Coca-Cola, which I find interesting. So we, we kind of laugh about, you know, drinking Coca-Cola on the course now, but we've interviewed a number of ultra marathoners and flat Coca-Cola seems to be a go-to at the mile 30, 40, 50 mark. Exactly. I mean, when I was growing up, obviously, there was no internet. Uh, and I think I read about, you know, maybe Frank Shorter or somebody, because all we really had back then was Runner's World magazine hard copy, you know, not, you know, not digitalized. So I read about it, and then I would put a can of Coke in the fridge the night before, let it, you know, fizzle out. And then it gives you liquid, it gives you caffeine, it gives you sugar. So, I mean, it, it had everything I needed. Yeah, and I can imagine the uh, uh, carbonation is the biggest problem. Um, so it, it's, it's, it's a weird thing to think about craving something as terrible as flat Coca-Cola. But uh, I do know <laughs> that in those moments, 
Well, when the body wants what the body wants, it's it's telling you, go get that, and, and it's the greatest thing you've ever had. Exactly. And I even had it this year. I ran the Baltimore Marathon this year, and at mile nine, you know, my son gave me a can of Coke. Um, unfortunately, um, he didn't defizzle it. It was a little <laughs> airplane size. So I took a swig or two, and then I, I tossed it, and then it kind of exploded on the, on the ground. <laughs> Ah, logistics. So let's fast forward a little bit to uh, decades 20 and 30 and talk about your, your marathons and, and your lifestyles. You, you know, as you get older, you get a job, you get busier and kind of keeping up that running lifestyle and how your thoughts changed or, around the marathon as, as you got some years behind you. All right. So um, what happened was, I was I'm so lucky. I mean, my, my work's been great. Um, so I've been very, very lucky in that regard. So after I went to law school, so I was undergrad, um, I was on the track team. You really can't run the marathon while you're in college, you know, because you're on a scholarship and you have to run those events. Um, so then after that, I went to law school. I went to law school at night and during the day I was a high school track coach. And then after that, I joined the Army because my last year of law school, my resume said track coach, lifeguard. It didn't say much about law. So. Um, I went to one interview. It was horrible. And then my dad said, join the army. I'm like, what are you talking about? Join the army. And I didn't know they had lawyers. So he said, no, they have lawyers, blah, blah, blah. So I decided to join the army. So I joined the army. I got very lucky because I, as soon as I joined, I got put onto the um, army's track team, not like the West Point College team, but the all army track team. So I spent like six months a year training in California down at the Presidio. At San Francisco, which is now closed, and then six months on the East Coast, you know, practicing law. So I did that for a few years, and then after a while, I realized that I'm kind of really falling behind my peers as far as the law part. So I stopped being on the All Army Track Team and just started running. Um, so I had a full time job as a lawyer in the Army. When you're a lawyer in the Army, you're in the Army. You have a uniform and stuff, but you're in an office environment. So I had a you know regular. I don't say, I can't say regular because things come up and you work more hours, but I had somewhat steady hours of, you know, six in the morning um, till maybe six at night. Because um, in the morning in the army, you do push-ups, sit-ups, like you see in the movies and things. Uh, and then you go to your office and work. So during that time, you know, I had more, I had to do more of a balance of running and working. Um, so, you know, you, at that point, you're not thinking about time anymore. Um, because you just don't have the time to do the training, you know, to do your best, you know, times um, like you were doing in college. So I had to look at it more as an enjoyment and, and an outlet uh, for stress. So I kind of saw the marathon and the training for the marathon was balancing my work and the stress from my work. Because I was a lawyer for the Army and I did a lot of defense work. I was a defense attorney. So I had people, murder cases, death penalty cases. So you get very, very stressed out doing those cases um, and you're constantly thinking about them. So running was a chance at nighttime, especially to go out and run by myself in the dark uh, and kind of decompress from the day. Um, and then it was also a chance in the military, you, you live around the world. So I got a chance also to do these marathons where I could see Berlin, I could see Paris, I could see Seoul, Korea, I could see Honolulu on foot which you don't get to see like when you're on a tour there. So the marathon kind of shifted from trying to always do my best time to running is now 
you know, a stress release and also an opportunity to see the world. Yeah, I think for me at least, running is so important for that stress release, right? Because, you know, as you get busy during the day and, you know, days just going by so fast and then you get a chance to go out there and run for an hour or more uh, and just you, the, the troubles literally seem to melt away. Yes. It was, it was funny because when I lived in Seoul, Korea, my next door neighbor um, in the apartment complex, he was, the, he was um, Korean and he was the chief negotiator for the North and South Korea. So at 10 o'clock at night, I would get on the elevator. He would get on the elevator and he'd say, rough day. i say, yes. And he'd go down to the river to hit golf balls and I would go <laughs> for a run. Um, and we'd see each other every, uh, every night, you know, heading over to the river. That, that was one of the things that you mentioned uh, in your uh, notes to us. You talked about one of your favorite memories is running along the Han River at night. Um, so besides having to dodge golf balls, uh, what was it about that run that was uh, particularly memorable? Memorable. Well, uh, the, first off, um, the Korean culture is really focused on the marathon. Like if you ask any person in Korea, like, who won, you know, the, the marathon at the last Olympics, they will know. Um, they've had Boston Marathon champions. They've had Olympic champions in the marathon, and they revere these people. So it's a different culture. If you say to an American, who's Galen Rupp? They're like, who's who? Um, but if you say, you know, a, a name of a marathon to the Korean people, anybody um, knows who they are. So it's a different mindset um, as far as running. When I first got there, I asked my uh, admin assistant, Miss Yi. I said, Miss Yi, there's this race I want to do. I can't read the website. Can you sign me up? And it said five kilometer, 10 kilometer, 21 kilometer, 42 kilometer. So 42 is the marathon. So I said, I want to do the 5K. And she said, why are you doing the children's race? I'm like, what are you talking about? And she's like, no, children do the 5K. Adults do the marathon. So I was like, okay. So um, every t I, I just love the Korean people so friendly. So I liked running along the Han River because the Han River is the main river in Korea. And right next to it, there's a, tr a path. And one lane is for rollerbladers. One lane is for bikers. One laner is for runners. And the running lane is like miles and miles of the material on a track. Very soft. So um, when you run, first off, you're interacting with people from Korea who are very friendly. And they're always asking you, are you training for Boston? Are you training for Boston? Um, they always want to know if you're doing the Boston Marathon. Uh, and I was like, no, I'm doing the Seoul Marathon. They always run with you. They tell you about Korea. They're very proud of their country. So they tell you about, hey, have you run at this place? It's a good place to run. So the, I, I like the people and also the sites. When you run along the Han River at night, uh, right across the river is downtown Seoul. And it's all lit up. The buildings are extremely beautiful. And the Han River has about 30 bridges that cross the river, and each bridge is lit up. There's water fountains. So it's just beautiful to run, and the people are absolutely wonderful. Yeah, it's funny. In uh, My wife's Japanese. We lived in Japan a long time, and it's the same way in Japan. Everybody, you know, there'll be nighttime TV shows and the guest star on the, you know, the talk show or whatever, you know, marathon runner. Yeah. And it's such to the point that any long-distance run in Japanese, the Japanese word for it is marathon. Yes. Uh, in, in Korea, it was always half course or full course. Yeah. Are, are you doing full course or half course? Well, I just like the no fact that you would chastise. Yes. <laughs> Adults don't run the 10K. 
That's for the kids. Yeah. And and I had just come from Kansas, so I could literally say we're not in Kansas anymore because I had lived in Kansas <laughs> and I had done you know 5K races there, and there seemed to be a lot of adults doing those in Kansas. Well, obviously, those uh, kids in Korea, when they're adults, they're going to kick our asses. <laughs> yes. So, 20s and 30s were spent mostly um, you know, working as a lawyer, traveling around. Let's, let's go into the, the next decade, your 40s, um, and how, how did your thoughts around that change? And, um, you know, what, what was your favorite marathon in that decade? All right, so the, my 40s, you, you start to age, obviously. <laughs> Tell me about and, it. Um, my, I guess my, my favorite marathon, you know, in my 40s would be the, the Seoul Marathon. Uh, it, you run all through Seoul, then you finish in the Olympic Stadium um, from 1988. So I guess Seoul was my favorite. Um, but I also like Berlin because I always heard Berlin was a really fast course. So I like going to Berlin. But in your 40s, um, you're almost you're aging, but you almost get reinvigorated because you become a master. Um, and I didn't know what masters were when I was young. Um, because I thought masters meant you were the best at it. I didn't realize it meant you were over 40. So, um, cause when I was about 15 or so, there was a race at a local park and it was called the Mas Long Island masters 5k championship. So I went and thought I'm pretty good. I'm a master at running. So I went, it was just like what I considered to be old men. So I left. <laughs> so, um, when I became forties, it's almost like you get reinvigorated that you want to you're in a new age division, you're in the master's age division, and you almost now want to challenge yourself to see how fast you can do as a 40-year-old. So, you know, in my late 20s, 30s, I, I was not focused at all on time. I would just run and, you know, do my best and, and enjoy the process. And then when I became 40, I said, well, now I'm a master. Maybe I could see how I could do in the master's division. So I kind of got reinvigorated a little bit from around 40 to 45. Um, to do my best that I could and, and just compare myself, you know, as I age, can I still maintain kind of the same times I was doing when I was 15 or 16 years old? So it was, it was a period of invigoration, but you're always fighting um, aging. You're not, you're not going to win. So I remember I was getting ready to go to New York City Marathon once and a friend of mine said, hey, how do you feel? I said, as good as you can feel for 45. You know what? You're not going to go to the start line feeling perfect. There's going to be something bothering you, um, but you just do the best you can for your age. That's funny. So, you know, uh, the the pains aren't that bad. So I must be feeling good. Yes. So with that, I mean, as you've ran these races, you're. I mean, by the time you're in your 40s, how many marathons have you completed at that point? I really don't know. I haven't kept track. I'm sure it's close to 100, but I have not. Honestly, I. I sometimes I once I tried to write down all my marathons and I and then I, I thought I had I must have missed a few. Then I tried another list and then I wrote some that I had forgotten about, but then I left some off that were on the first list. So yeah, I'd really have to go back year by year and, and try to figure it all out. But it's gotta be close to a hundred, I'm sure. So so my question around that is I mean, what did you learn about yourself as a runner as you progressed not only through multiple marathons, but, but as you aged? And, and I say that because um, I've got three under my belt, so well behind you. And I still really don't know who I am as a marathon runner. I mean, where am I going to hit my wall? 
where am I going to find my second stride, that sort of thing. I mean, these particulars about yourself, I mean, how, how did that evolve for you as you racked up these number of marathons? Well, I, I think it, um, a lot comes from experience and, and learning what you did wrong. Um, I guess, you know, my focus when I was younger was, you know, in high school was the one mile, the two mile, and then college, you know, similar. So I always had this thing, you got to get out fast, you got to get out fast. It was always my mindset in a race in cross country, you got to get out fast. So when I was doing the marathon, I was younger, I had that same mindset, you got to get out fast, die all the time, yeah. I would, you know, go out probably too fast. Um, you know, cause I, I, I was thinking like, well, if you, you know, if you do a 5k in 15 minutes and you double it, you're going to run a 10k in 30 minutes. I was thinking, and that's what, you know, my track background. Um, so I was thinking, well, if I do a, you know, a 10 mile run in 52 minutes, I double it, I'll get to the 20 mile mark and 144, but then you're totally dead. So what I learned over the years is pace is patience and pacing. Um, and also to be yourself. Um, a lot of times when I would go to races when I was younger, you kind of get on the start line. Oh, he's here. He's here. And you're kind of racking up where you're going to place. Um, and you're almost not just thinking about yourself. So as I got older, I focused more on myself, uh, not worrying about other people, how they're doing. And also I focused on going a lot slower in the beginning. Um, so I learned that, you know, from doing several marathons, you know, trial and error. And also just my runs, you know, going for long runs. Um, I, I learned that, like, if you go too fast, it's going to be a miserable second half of the race. So I just learned, you know, from trial and error, I think. I think this is a great opportunity for uh, us and also our listeners out there who are newer to the marathon is uh, kind of the strategy going for it. We had, we had a guest uh, previously um, read a blog post and, and kind of that, that micro strategy, you know, one, one of the things I read was, uh, first three miles, you know, do it 10 to 15 seconds over your target pace, what you're trying to do, you know, next, uh, 10 miles is, you know, focus on hydration and food. And then, you know, mile, I think it was like 11 to 22 is, you know, get with the group and just keep pace with them. And then, you know, last four miles is, is do what you can do. Do you have a strategy similar to that and how, how you uh, structure your marathon as you're running it? Yes, I kind of do it this way for a couple, couple of reasons. One is pace your strategy. Um, and you learn this in the military, too. You have a great plan until the first shot gets fired. Same thing <laughs> yeah. in the marathon. You can have a great plan. Um, but then you wake up, it's windy, it's cold or something. So you, you have to have a plan, but you got to be flexible with your plan. Um, so it's always, it, it's a good idea to go in knowing, Hey, I want to do this pace per, per mile, but you got to change that. Yeah. You know, and you have to be okay with changing that. You can't get, if your goal is to say, run 10 minutes a mile, right? So your goal is I'm going to run 10 minutes per mile. Um, and then you wake up. And it's, there's a headwind or it's cold or something's not working out. You can't get stressed out if you're running 10, 15 a mile. That's what you're going to run that day. That's okay. This is not the last marathon in the history of marathons. There are other marathons to do. So one is to be, be flexible. The other thing in the marathon, is, it's sort of overwhelming how far it is. Um, and if you're running and thinking about how much further I have to go, it can be daunting. So what I like to do is I don't like to think about how far I have left until I'm in single digits. Um, 
you know, until mile 16. Then after mile 16, I'm starting to think nine miles, nine miles. Then I'm starting to think. So the beginning of the race from miles one to 15, I'm just trying to stay relaxed. If I feel like I'm going slow, that's okay. Um, so miles one through 15, I just want to stay relaxed and just stay inward, but especially in the big races. There's so many people, um, you know, and people are ringing cowbells and there's people cheering and there's people in costumes. There's a lot, a lot of energy. Um, and I don't like to focus on that. I want to just focus inward for the first 15 miles and just almost imagine I'm just doing a, a 15 mile run on my own at home on like the Sino Canal or something. Um, I'm trying to not focus on anything exterior because that's all mental energy that's going to be wasted. Um, so miles one through 15, I just stay inward and just stay relaxed. And I don't get stressed about my pace because if you get stressed about your pace, it's a snowball that's going to get bigger and bigger and bigger of self-doubt. So the beginning part of the race is all inward and positive. Um, and then when I get to mile 16, I start thinking, wow, I'm down to single digits left. Now that's something manageable. Uh, and then my next kind of target area is mile 22. Because once I get to 22, I just got four miles left. And I think four miles, that's two miles out, two miles back, as if I was doing a run like during the week or something. So I, I see that as manageable. Is I think I, I kind of go from mile one to 16 inward, don't get concerned about anything outside. 16 to 22, just count down each mile. Okay, eight to go, seven to go. And then when I get to mile, 22, I think, hey, it's just like 16 laps on the track, or it's just two miles out, two miles back. So I kind of break it down in thirds. And do you purposely start off a little slower those first few miles, or do, or you, do you view those first 15 miles as all the same and just, just try to stay relaxed? No, slower in the beginning. Um, certainly slower in the beginning, because you have to get warmed up. Because um, using the marathon, especially the big city ones, you have to get there so early, you know, beforehand. Then you got to walk out to the start, and you're in your corrals. like you know, for 30 minutes and you're just kind of standing. Um, and then finally, when you get going, it's just like, you got to get your legs moving. So I, you know, usually go out slower in the beginning and I don't get stressed about pace. I mean, if you're feeling great, you save that for miles, you know, 12, 13, 14, mm -hmm. 15 down the line, you know, put money in the bank. I always call it money in the bank. You know, it's like a savings account. Um, save your energy for later. Yeah. And that goes back to uh, that first question or, or that question I had around what you've learned about yourself as a runner, because I think that's one of the things for uh, first timers or second or third marathons don't really know how to gauge what your fuel tank is like. You know, how much do I have left? Do I have, am I at mile 18, 19 feeling good? Does that mean I've got enough to pick it up now or do I still need to hold it back a little bit because I want to finish strong in mile 23 through 26? I think learning that about yourself is the part about wanting to run more marathons. It probably motivates me to get out there and sign up again. Exactly. And, and a marathon also, the one thing you can't practice is the race morning. Because the race morning, depending on what marathon you're doing, is overwhelmingly stressful. Um, now, if you're in a running group, like the, um, the team in training is a great group here in D.C. They get together every Sunday morning and they run, they do an 18 or 20 mile run. So you, you, you arrive, you kind of chat with your friends and then you go for a run and you think, hey, this was kind of good. I, I made it. But th that doesn't factor in when you 
they're doing a big city race, because most marathons now are big city races. Um, it's about a four-hour process from bed, getting out of bed to the gun going off. And you have to mentally prepare for that. I mean, because a lot of times people, when they do their first marathon, is also sometimes their first race, you know, that they've ever done. And you have to factor in quarter jobs, like, you know, some things you don't think about. I'm going to have to factor in, I need 30 minutes to be on the portage online. Because um, I see people scrambling. Oh my gosh, the line's so long. Well, that's something you learn over time is that you kind of make a, you get to the race an hour before, and this is kind of my checklist of what to do. And if you have that checklist of what to do, it, it reduces your stress tremendously, you know, once the race starts. Um, so it's almost to get a pre-race routine. Also, you have to figure out, you know, how am I going to get to the start? Is it a one of those starts is point to point, I got to get on a bus? Or is it where I can just roll in and park my car and get to the start line? Like Marine Corps Marathon is a huge race here in D.C., but you have to go through security for an hour, you know, to get the checkpoint by the Pentagon. If you have not thought that through before you got to the start, you are going to be stressed out right away. So a lot of the problem with the marathon, especially when you're kind of starting it is the mental energy. It's more mental energy than and physical. You have you only have a, a finite gas tank of mental energy. And you don't want to waste half of your mental energy before the gun even goes off. Um, so to control that is you have to make a checklist. You know, what is my plan from when I wake up to when that gun goes off? And if you have that plan, you're gonna be mentally fresh when the gun goes off. I've seen people at New York City Marathon, New York City Marathon is wonderful, but it's a ferry ride, a bus ride, sitting in the cold before you get onto the Verrazano Bridge. And I've seen people, when the gun goes off, finally we're getting this over with. Well, you're already defeating <laughs> yourself before you started. Um, but because you didn't factor these things in. So you, you really raced morning, especially if you're new at this, you just have to stay inward and focus on yourself. And then have a plan, you know, when am I going to go to the bathroom? When am I going to throw, I'm going to have a throwaway sweatshirt. When am I going to get rid of my throwaway sweatshirt? All those things you have to kind of plan. It was funny. I was down at the Surf City Half Marathon and uh, it'd been the, the first half marathon where I was at. There was like really a crowd. It was just this recently after COVID and it was just really exciting. You know, we live in Oregon. It was cold here. I flew down to California, sun shining. It's going to be a, you know, 68 degree day and I was all excited and then the gun goes off I I crossed the start line I was like oh I forgot to make one last pit stop at the port body to take a leak and uh, I was running along but I was uh I had you know that experience kicked in so I was like okay I'm not gonna stop at the first one I'm I think I can hold it to the second bank because there's not gonna be a line at the second bank right. yeah those are all things you, you learn from experience um because, you know, the big city race, a lot of people, there's a ton of energy. Um, but a lot of times you're almost like, you know, when you're walking a dog and a dog keeps seeing a squirrel. Like, so when you get to a, a race, there's so many people looking all around. There's so much stuff going on that they forget to focus on their race. Yeah, and I think that's a, an important point. You brought up a lot about um, knowing what's going to happen before the race starts. I think so many of us, you know, memorize the route. And we're looking at the aid stations and where are the porta potties. 
And we forget that we're going to spend, you know, half again as much time beforehand. And you will lose so much energy and focus if you don't know what to expect in that moment. And it can be really easy to get cold and cramped and stiff and, you know, really think about the whole day. And I I would say that the race morning starts the night before if you don't sleep well like I do. (laughs) Exactly. Nervous and ready to go. It's it's really important to get two nights before, get a good sleep, um, because you kind of almost factor in the night before you're not going to get a great sleep. So, you know, the rule of thumb is always make sure you get a good night's sleep two nights before. Uh, and then, you know, when you get to bed, you're going to be restless. It's just it, you have to expect that. Um, but you really, really have to understand that the, the two to three hours before you start is critical um, because you could be mentally tired before you start and I've I've felt that way myself when I've been to Boston Marathon I've got to the start line I'm like man I've been up since six in the morning when can I finally get started um so you have to overcome that you learn that and you kind of learn your routine over time you're going to learn you know when I get to the start this is what time I go to the port of John I need to go to the port of John and like you know everyone's a little different um this is how I relax you know I could bring a copy of the newspaper and sit under a tree and just flip through the newspaper. I could look at my iPhone. You know, what do I do to relax beforehand? The other thing that I see a temptation of is self-doubt is creeping in is because you get to the start line and you've been practicing by yourself or with your, your friends um, and you're very confident and then you get there and there's 10,000 people and you overhear stuff. Oh, you know, I did a 22 mile run and I, and, and, you know, this training plan said do a 22 mile run. And you're like, oh my gosh, I didn't do a 22 mile run. How am I going to do? You know, that person has the magic secret. Or you see somebody doing this stretch that you've never done before. Oh, that's the magic stretch. Um, so you have to be confident. There's nothing more you can do when you're there. So you have to be confident in what you've done and don't listen to what other people do have done. That's worked for them. That's fine. But you're not them. Um, But a lot of times I see people, especially newer people, um, when they're at that start area, they overhear stuff and then doubt creeps in. Oh, that person did something better than me. And I should have done that. Well, you don't have time to do that now anyway. Um, And why do you think that's so perfect? You did the perfect schedule. So uh, a lot of times I, when there's a lot of people, you overhear stuff and then self-doubt creeps in. You can't listen to those other people. You prepared for yourself the best way to prepare for you. Focus on yourself. Don't listen to other people. Um, and, but I hear, I, I overhear that a lot where people get nervous because other people have done something, you know, quote unquote better. So I have a, a little pro tip on the, the cold weather throwaway s- sweatshirt that I've used a couple of years is that uh, you go around to your friends after Christmas and uh, ask them for their, their ugly sweater sweatshirts from Christmas that they no longer want anymore. And uh, those those are good to use. Yeah, so that's perfect. I also um, Kmart's. I usually go to the clearance Kmart, and you can get. Uh, it's not going to look very fashionable all the time, um, but you know, sweatshirt and sweatpants that you could wear at the start. Because a lot of times, especially if you're newer to the marathon, you think, "Oh, I've got my perfect shorts, my perfect shirt," but then you don't realize what are you going to wear for those two hours before the start when you start to get cold. And, and, you know, a lot of races do have the baggage check, but that also is hours beforehand is the baggage check. And once you check your stuff, you're still going to be waiting about an hour before the start. 
Yeah, Goodwill's also an uh, excellent choice there. Just pick something up on the on the cheap, drop it off uh, wherever you need to go. And that is a great point. It is so easy to, to get cold in those few moments, uh, that half hour, 45, 60 minutes between when you have to turn in your bag and when the race actually starts. And, uh, you know, you don't want to get on the course and be uh, overdressed and overheated. There's so many little things that can come into it. Um, I mean, what do you, how, when you prep for your races, what are the things that you focus on for fueling now that you've uh, got a number of these under your belt? How do you go about making sure that your body is ready to run 26 miles? Well, I practice um, fueling when on my long runs. Never do anything in a race you have not done in practice. Um, that, that's a hard, fast rule. So especially, you know, when I was growing up, there was no such thing as a marathon expo. You know, your, your packet got mailed to you. Now I see people go to the expo and there's a, and the expos are wonderful. There's a million products at the expos. Buy whatever you want, but do not use what you bought at that expo the next day at the race because you haven't tested it out. Um, so over the years, you know, there's been different kind of gels have come out over the years, but I find um, goo to be the best. I like the vanilla goo. So what I do, and it's also a mental thing with me too, is I will take goo like on my long runs. I'll have them. And then when I do the marathon, um, I bring six of them and I have them every 45 minutes. So it's almost like the less goo in my hand, the closer to the finish. So it's almost a mental thing to me too. Um, and almost the goo becomes like a treat to break up the monotony of the race. So I take them every 45 minutes. I'll have a goo. Um, so over time, I learned through trial and error, which one works best for me. Um, Cause there's entire aisles now at the sporting goods stores of goos. Um, I didn't know what they were. I guess they came out in 1996, the first time I saw goo at the Cherry Blossom 10-miler. Uh, and back then, it was like eating toothpaste. But now they've gotten a lot better. So it's a lot of it is trial and error. Is But you want to trial and error at practice. Because if, if, if a particular brand gives you some digestion issues, you want to figure that out before you're in your race. So I would go to like the sporting goods store and find the flavors you like. Um, and then try them out, you know, in practice. I also like the cliff shots also. Um, that's also mental, I think, more for me is cliff shots because I get the packet. I think there's like 10 in them, and I'll eat those during the race. It just gives me something to do um, eating a cliff shot. So um, I go, I eat the cliff shot gummies and also a goo. So a goo every 45 minutes, uh, and then the cliff shots just throughout the race, I'll have those. So as we move along, uh, now we're in the uh, fifth decade. So uh, in your 50s, when you're running marathons, how have things changed? You know, what parts have fallen apart a little bit and need a little repair? <laughs> All right. So what happened is, um, you hate to say, like, life happens. You know, people always say life happens. You know, why don't you, you know, climb out of Everest? Life happens. Well, um, I had a transition. So I was in the military, and the military is very um, – your day is very focused. You know, every morning you have to go to personal training at six o'clock, push up, sit ups, run. Then you go, you know, to chow hall, then you work, then you're done. So your day is very, very focused. Um, so when you're, when your day is very focused, your time management is very good. That's when you have your best time management skills is when you have the less, less, least amount of time. So it's like, okay, I'm going to do PT in the morning. I'm going to work. I'm going to go for a run at lunchtime. Um, 
then work, then come home to my family. On the weekends, I'm going to do my long run. Then I retired when I was 52. I retired from the military because you can get out after 20 years. So I spent 26 years in and I retired. And all of a sudden you have all this time, but you waste it. <laughs> so I, I retired when I was 52 in the summer. And I was like, I watched, I started watching Quincy MD on TV land and Love Boat. And I'm like, I can't do this for the next 30 years. Um, but so I started to transition into coaching at American University. Um, and then I became a teacher at American University. Your lifestyle changes a little bit. You know, teaching and coaching is a little bit more flexible. You know, I teach X number of classes and have, you know, breaks between classes. So you, um, I didn't run as much. Even though I had more time, I didn't run as much. Um, also, my son Cam, he, I, he was four when I retired. So I wanted to spend more time with him. You know, when he's four, five, six, I'd pick him up after school. He'd come to track practice with me or go to the playground and stuff. So running kind of took a back seat. Um, I would still run every day, um, but not that much. And I was not doing any races, you know, um, for a while. I would just run and less and less each day to the point where I'd be running and people walking their dogs would be passing me. Um, so, and then it gets a little frustrating. It's like, because you have to, you can't, you, you have to understand where you are now in life. You have a 58-year-old body. You can't have a 16-year-old mind of, you know, I can still run this fast. You, you have to accept the fact that you are not that person anymore. And that's hard sometimes. Um, and I know a lot of people like who've been to the Olympics and things who don't run at all now because they're always comparing themselves to their younger life. And they're like, if I'm running, you know, the, the 5K in 13 minutes, what's the point of me doing in the 17 minutes? I mean, that's their mindset because it's a very different mindset. When I was running, you know, when I was in my mid 50s, I was enjoying it, but I was just doing very little. I was maybe doing 20 minutes, four days a week just to stay in touch with the sport um, until I went for a walk with Cam and he gave me that challenge to go for the sixth decade. And then in the beginning of that period, it was rough. I'll tell you, man, it was rough because I was going for runs and people, like I said, people were walking their dog past me. I'm like, how the heck am I going to even get to mile marker one in the marathon? So I kept delaying the training. I kept saying, well, I'll start next month. Well, I'll start next month. And all of a sudden it's getting closer and closer. And then finally one day I was running. And my dad used to always say, stop your nonsense. So I was running. I said, Kevin, stop your nonsense. You got to start running. So I just kept running that day for an hour. And I said, it's going to hurt. It's going to stink. I'm going to feel horrible. But it has to be done. Because if I don't do it, I'm going to get to mile mark of one of the Baltimore Marathon and get in the do not finish car or something. So the first, once I made the decision, I got to do this, then it, it, I, each week by week, it felt good because I, every week I was like challenging myself. Well, last week I ran for an hour. This week I want to try to run for an hour and 10 minutes. So it became a new challenge to me is to each week try to do a little bit more as I prepared for the marathon. And how was that marathon? It was long. Uh, <laughs> was it a whole 26.2? Yes, yes. It was up in Baltimore. And what happened was, uh, and this kind of goes into being flexible, so many races kept getting canceled because of COVID, like even this past fall. So I originally said I would do um, the Marine Corps Marathon, 
you know, and then that got canceled. Then I was going to go up to Scranton to do the Steamtown Marathon. That got canceled. So finally I said, well, Baltimore has a marathon. I'll go to that one. So you had to be flexible, um, you know, where I was going to go. And then when I got to the marathon, uh, I just said, no matter what, I've got to finish. Um, I'm not going to stop. So it, it took a long time, but it was, it was twice the, more than twice as long as I had done for my previous times, you know, but it was, but if you meet different people along the way, like I said, the marathon is a full tapestry of people, right? So when I was around mile 20, 22, we we're all the five hour crew and we're all encouraging each other, you know, to finish. Um, and you meet these people who, when you're running two hours and 20 minutes, you, you, you don't interact with those people as much. Um, but they're wonderful people and they've trained just as hard. Um, so you're meeting different people along the way. The, the spectators in Baltimore are absolutely fantastic. So I loved it. I mean, it was my favorite marathon, even though it was by far my slowest. It was my favorite because I met so many different people along the way and everybody was so encouraging along the way. Yeah, I think that's one thing that doesn't get emphasized enough is um, the the mental fortitude it takes to put in a long timed marathon. And you know, when you know you're going to be out there for five to six hours, that's a whole different focus than getting out thinking you're going to get wrapped up in three to three and a half. Exactly, and and you know, if you're and I think people have to appreciate that fact that you know, if you're running a marathon in two and a half hours, okay. Hats off to you. That's great. I mean, but imagine being on your feet to five to six hours. That is a long day. That is a long time. And and I remember, you know, when I was running, when I got to mile 14, man, I was dead on my feet, you know, and I was like, I still got 12 miles to go, but I got 12 miles of friends here who are going to help me get there. Um, so I, I remember, you know, along the way, you, you, you kind of, you walk, jog, walk, jog, and there's nothing wrong with walking, by the way. Um, walk, jog, walk, jog. And as you're walking, you might talk to somebody and then jog a little bit. And then you're walking, they pass you. So you kind of see the same people. You always give them a pat on the back. So there's a lot of camaraderie out there, you know, to making sure we all got to the finish line. Yeah. I mean, when you think about it, Kipchoge is just a wussy. He's only running half as much time as everybody else out there on the course. Yeah. They're out there for two hours. He needs to um, step it up. And so, you know, and to train for that, because a lot of, I, I mostly train by time, not by distance, because I think if I'm going to be on my feet for five hours, I, in practice, I've got to be on my feet for three and a half hours. So I kind of do it by time. So I remember years ago, um, if you're running two and a half hours, if you're going for an hour and a half run, you're, you've kind of almost run how far you're going to run. And that's not a, a lot of time. But when you're running a marathon, I mean, it's a lot of time commitment. You've got to balance that with your family, too. Cause you don't want to take too much time away from your family. Um, and I was very lucky now that I'm a teacher. I could do my long runs on Wednesdays. So my weekends, I'm not out, you know, down at the park for five hours, you know, on a Saturday morning. So uh, before we let you go, I'd love to jump into some gear stuff. I would imagine your gear is a little bit different uh, than the waffle trainer that you started with. You know, what's, well, your, what's your favorite? Funny, and, um, so when I finally decided I was going to, kind of kind of full in on, on getting this, you know, Cam had kind of mentioned it to me, you know, six decades. And then um, last spring, I challenged one of my students to a race around the quad on campus and I got destroyed. And that's when I said, <laughs> okay, I got to, you know, get in gear here. So my sneakers, there's these new sneakers out. Everyone's talking about the, um, the Nike alpha flies, you know, with the carbon. Oh yeah. Fiber. 
So I, I but I was kind of like embarrassed to buy them because I'm thinking like if Kipchoge's wearing them and people in the Olympics are wearing them, if I go to the runner store, they're gonna like think I'm like crazy, you know. Um, but I said I'll do it. I'll, I'll do it as research, <laughs> yeah. so I can compare the waffle trainers to the shoes of today. Um, so I went to the store and I was kind of embarrassed. Um, so it's like when you're a kid and you want to buy Playboy. So you go to the store and you buy like a ball, you buy gum, <laughs> you buy Sports Illustrated, and you buy and Playboy. And you put them all on the desk and hope the cashier doesn't check them. <laughs> you know. So it's the same thing when I went to the running store. It's like, oh, okay, I'll buy some shorts, I'll buy a shirt, I'll buy some gels, and just throw in a pair of Alpha Flies. You know, hopefully they wouldn't notice. So I got the um, the Nike Alpha Flies. And when I put them on, they, I felt like I was on pogo sticks. And I was like, man, how am I going to run in these? And so I took them out for a, a test run. Never do anything in practice. You haven't, you know, don't do anything in a race you haven't done in practice. You know, train as you fight. So I went for a run. And my first couple of steps, I felt I was going to fall down. Um, and then after a while, they felt more comfortable. Then after a while, it felt like the sneakers were making me go faster. Um, so I, I did like them. So, but when I got to the race, I was not embarrassed at all because everybody had them. So I didn't feel embarrassed at all. Um, so I kind of looked at, I was sitting down, you know, before the start, I just sat on the curb and all I could see was Nike alpha flies on everybody. So I didn't feel embarrassed anymore. Yeah. Nike's not going to make a billion dollars this year selling one pair of shoes to uh, Kipchoge. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. He's going to need a lot of use out there uh, filling in the, uh, the yes, void. That and. And, you know, I, I do wear them. I do think, especially as you're older, I think those kind of, they're, they're expensive. I mean, they're like $200. Um, but I do think that they, they leave your legs from getting battered. You, you know, they give you, you know, there's kind of a cushion. So I think you recover a little bit better from your longer runs when you wear shoes like that. So when you're out there, you've got this long run. Uh, what's, how, do you, how do you track your your pacing and your your body metrics do you use like a garmin apple watch heart rate monitor what what is your way of knowing you're on track for for what you want to get done okay well now what i do is i i there's a wonderful park right near me on the potomac river it's called great falls park and there's endless trails so i used to, i like to run on trails i don't like to go on the roads um, just because i you know i don't want to get hit by a car also it's um you know it's a little bit boringer so I like to mostly go on the trails. So usually I don't wear a watch at all. Usually when I park my car, I look what time my car says. Um, and then I kind of know the different trails and how long it's going to take. So when I get back to my car, I look at the clock and I know what that is. Now, um, how far I've run. So I don't wear a watch. And that goes back to my youth. I lived across the street from the elementary school that had a big clock on it. So when I started running, see what time it was, finish, see what time it was. So I kind of over the years, have an internal pacing um, and kind of know it that way. But I, I have in the past worn a, a Tom Tom. I don't think that's in business anymore. Um, that was a watch that would tell you your pace, your distance, and your time. So I think those are wonderful. Um, those watches are really good to make sure you're not going too fast. Um, but now I do a lot just because I have no time goals now. You know, I just want to finish. So now when I go run in the woods, I just want to look at the foxes. I want to um, watch out for coyotes. I'm always looking for coyotes. Um, so I'm just out in nature. Um, I go early in the morning now. Uh, I just enjoy being in nature. So I don't think about time, don't think about distance. I just know what time I got out of my car, what time I get back in my car. 
Um, but if you're, you know, doing a first, second marathon, you've got to understand pacing. So a Garmin is fantastic for that, um, that you can wear that in practice. So you can kind of feel what 10 minutes a mile feels like or what 11 minutes a mile feels like. And then when you're in the race, you can track yourself to make sure you're not going too fast in the beginning. So I want to make sure we, we mentioned your book, but we didn't talk about it much. Um, so uh, we mentioned your book, but we didn't talk about it much. Uh, I'd love to give you a chance to tell everybody the title of, of your book and then uh, where they can find it. I got mine off of Amazon on my Kindle because uh, I can take that everywhere. Yeah, it's called um, Going the Distance Tales and Tips from Six Decades of Marathons. And it's on Amazon. It's on Barnes and Noble. Um, it's I just I wrote it in 10 days, um, you know, because I wrote a lot of my job as a lawyer. So it's really the book focuses. It's kind of a combination of a comedy book because um, I tried to tell t funny stories along the way. And it's a lot of tips as well. Um, but it's not like do this. You know, it's not like do these 10 things. Don't do these 10 other things. It's kind of what I learned through trial and error. And then what, what you can based on my mistakes how you can do better than what I did based on my mistakes. You can learn from my mistakes. Yeah, it's a it's a really fun read. I'm as I said, I'm only three chapters in. I'm, I got a little bit behind, uh, but it's a super fun, quick read. So recommend everybody get out there and, and get it. It's it's a lot of fun. Well, you're three chapters farther along than I got to uh, before the interview. Just to be honest with everybody out there, uh, I have thoroughly enjoyed talking with you, Kevin, there's a lot of the ways that you approach racing, which are really uh, similar to the way that I go about it. I'm sure a lot of our listeners out there are going to feel the same. And I think that you put out some fantastic advice on how to keep running for many years and the focus it takes to keep finishing all these marathons. Well, thank you so much for having me this morning. I hope that I look as great as he does uh, when I've ran that many marathons, and I hope that I simply get to the point of having ran that many marathons. Exactly. I can't believe he's been running a marathon for every decade for so long. Um, you guys got to get the book because it's hilarious when he's talking about his first marathon and how unprepared but yet prepared to do it he was and how little information was out there. You know, his dad shows up with an index card of like, here's your plan. Go for it. Yeah. And, you know, let's let's highlight his dad just a little bit because, uh, you know, I, I like the, you know, throw them in the deep end, see what they can do sort of uh, mentality as parenting. Um, I wouldn't consider a 13-mile swim um, unsupervised <laughs> necessarily good I advice. Think this yeah, I think this day and age you'd have child protective services showing up at your door. Yeah. I mean, and then the other thing is, how did they get back home? Did the did, did the dad drive around and and pick him up? But it, Yeah, cuz there's no bridge to go across and pick him up. No. No, but you know, it's interesting how that clearly left a mark in his mind about just you can get something done. You know, fit, Yeah. Get interested, get out there, see what it's like. Yeah, if you don't know how to do something, figure it out. Indeed. And, you know, right now what's really important is really just to emphasize that you got to keep getting out there. And I think there's a few times where he, you know, wasn't prepared. He didn't think he was ready, but he still went out and showed up and got it done. Exactly. So, you know, either get your Kindle out, head over to the bookstore, or open up Amazon. It's Kevin Boyle, Going the Distance, 
tales and tips from six decades of marathons. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Old Crazy Runners. Take a moment to rate and review the podcast and always share it with your friends so they can join in with all of us for these great episodes. And be sure to go by Strava and join the Old Crazy Runners podcast, Strava Run Club, because that's where all us old crazies hang out. It's where we encourage each other to keep getting out there, to keep putting in the miles. And keep being old crazy runners. <laughs>